This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Judy Ryan. Judy is an activist and a campaigner, and she joined me to talk about her new book. It's called You Talk, We Die, The Battle for Victoria's First Safe Injecting Facility. Judy, with the support of fellow residents from Richmond and Abbotsford, successfully campaigned to get Victoria's first safe injecting facility established. She talks about the journey that got her there and what's next for safe injecting facilities in Victoria. It is truly my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome this next guest onto the program, Judy Ryan is brilliant and she has been doing some amazing community organising and advocacy for quite a number of years now. All of that is detailed in a book that she's put together and written called You Talk, We Die, The Battle for Victoria's First Safe Injecting Facility. Judy, I guess I'll leave it up to her to explain her background, but Certainly, I don't think this is what she envisaged her life would get to when she started out with the type of work she was doing. But certainly, I'm sure that many in Melbourne are so grateful that she did pick this up and volunteer her time and advocacy to the cause. And certainly, the first time I heard of Judy's work was through a friend of this program, Johan Hari. When he was here in 2018, in September, he came onto this show to talk about his book, Chasing the Scream, which I know Judy has read because it says so in her book. And Johan was absolutely raving about Judy, saying the amazing things that she had done to make this a reality, Victoria's first safe injecting facility in Richmond. So as soon as I saw this book, I thought I have to speak to Judy because anyone that Johan thinks is amazing absolutely has to be. So it is with that And my great pleasure that I welcome onto the program, Judy Ryan. Hi there, Judy, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Hello, Amy, and thank you for your interest in my book. And that's a bit of a pretty heady introduction. I'm I'm just uh, a bit floored by that because I don't think I'm amazing or brilliant in any respect. I'm just a person in our community who thought, nah, this isn't good enough. Yeah. I appreciate your humility, as I know many other people will be impressed by once they hear your story. And some may already be familiar with your story because I know that as part of this quest, engaging with community as well as the media and other parts of civil society has really been a huge part of your role is communication and education as well as advocacy. So we'll get into that. But I did want to establish your roots of where you've come from, the values that you've had and that you certainly clearly were influenced by your mother, who you write about in the book, and obviously where you come from in Wangaratta and how that's all come to bear on how you've seen this issue of drug use in Richmond and Abbotsford. So could you take us through your life? What led you up to this point where you moved to Richmond and and was confronted with the types of drug use that you see there and the lethal overdoses that were quite frequent. Yes, thanks, Amy. So I was born and raised in Wangaratta, so I'm 61, nearly 62 years of age. I'm the seventh of eight children, and that was is always a great um, learning ground for 
your behaviours as you get older and I learned to stand up for myself and and to pick my battles with older siblings and, you know, I love them all dearly but I think families are really, it's like your apprenticeship in life is how you manage at that level in what you do next. So, um, so my mother uh, became a widow when I was five years old. My father, Morris, died very suddenly of a coronary heart attack at our home in Wangaratta 67 years ago. So uh, 57 years ago, I should say. And I think it was mum's response to that um, tragedy and complete upheaval that inspired me so much. I was five, as I said, so I don't remember my father, but mum's ability to pick herself up off the canvas really and learn how to do all of those things in the 1960s that women didn't usually do in terms of money management and, you know, manage the the practical aspects of home maintenance and car maintenance and that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, mother had lots of children and that was the main role of women in those days. So what I saw with my mother, Amy, was that Backed into this incredible corner, she actually found a skill set that she probably never would have known she had, had Dad not died when he did. And what I mean by that is she became really uh, strong and an advocate for local people who were doing it tough. Uh, She was very involved with young women in those days referred to as unmarried mothers who didn't get support from... uh, authorised groups as they do perhaps now and mum really uh, welcomed and nurtured a lot of those young women. She had a lot of compassion for people who had lost parents, they were orphans. She was very involved in a lot of social justice activities in our community. But I think one of the most remarkable things that my mother Mary Ryan did was she was involved in a credit, the setting up of a credit cooperative for people who were struggling financially. And she uh, worked with other, a few other local um, community members, and eventually they set up what has now become a very well-respected uh, credit union called the WAW, Wangaratta Albury Wodonga Credit Union, which is known throughout that uh, southern New South Wales and northeast Victoria. And, of course, this was a skill that mum had gained since our father died. She had to manage the budget. She had to work out her income, which was absolutely minuscule. And uh, she, from those experiences, she helped other people learn how to manage their income and expenditure so they could get back on their feet. And so in terms of her inspiration in my life, when I look at what happened with me when I relocated from northeast Victoria to inner city Melbourne in 2012, was that I was confronted with a tragic health issue that many people knew about, had known about for decades, and for whatever reason had either become blasé or just, you know, accepted it as part of of inner city life. So 
channeling my mother's ability to take on something that I didn't really know much about. I thought somebody had to stand up for this issue and I didn't initially think it would be me. I thought who they should do something about it, you know, and we all say that all the time. Mm. And I remember brushing my teeth one night looking in the mirror saying, well, look, you're the one that actually is getting a dander up about this. You're the one that's living with this. You're the one that thinks somebody should do something. So maybe it is you, you know, and, but then you think, well, what can you do? It's just, it seemed like an incredibly difficult issue. But once again, thinking of Mary Ryan, I thought, well, look, you know, she did some extraordinary things um, and our family is very grateful for that. So I thought anything in my life would never be as difficult as what she did. So I thought I'll give this a crack. And I did. I totally understand where you're coming from, where you describe, you know, your mother's influence and her truly inspiring efforts in the community. And it's something that I have noticed, especially in country Victoria elsewhere, is that a lot of women are really the beating heart of the country and they volunteer their time and establish social charities and groups when there is a gap. And so it's so inspiring to hear Mary was doing that in Wangaratta. And I wanted to, I guess, bring it to where you moved here in Richmond. You say you moved to North Richmond in the late 1970s. So you'd already kind of been there briefly before and then obviously came back in 2012. That was back to South Abbotsford where you wanted to be closer to your husband's elderly mother. And I guess I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the area, your observations of Abbotsford and Richmond and the area that does have quite a long history of associations with drug use and the selling of drugs, especially illicit drugs. Yes. Well, I did live at 88 Elizabeth Street, North Richmond, when I was in first year university in 1979. There was a drug market here then in this area, although not as rampant as it was when I returned here in 2012. I went to RMIT and when you live in uh, Melbourne and you uh, are from the country and you, you know, want to, uh, living in one of those, uh, attending one of those inner city institutions, it's a rite of passage to live in the inner city. So Fitzroy, Collingwood, mm. Richmond, Abbotsford, and it's fantastic. It's just, it makes people, it, it's kids out of ho- their homes, learn about themselves and what they what their values are. It's a it's a wonderful thing. And fortunately, our our three uh, children uh, did the same thing. We very much encouraged them to leave home and to do similar things. So uh, anyway, uh, so my mother um, didn't really understand that I was living in this you know drug area. Um, there were probably more drugs around Fitzroy Collingwood then. But definitely there still was in Richmond, North Richmond. Uh, so, but over the years, of course, you know, I married and had kids and we moved back to the country. Whenever we came to Melbourne, we'd always bring them out to Victoria Street because of the beautiful food, you know, the interesting cuisine and flavours and that sort of thing. And so when we decided to leave Wodonga in 2012, you know, 
I really wanted to come and live in this area. We'd lived in country Victoria on an acre and two acres and had, you know, a boat and a ride on mower and all that jazz. And I just wanted to pair it right back and live simply in the inner city. I just, I just didn't want a complicated <laughs> life, ironically. <laughs> and um, so when we were looking for houses, interestingly, I couldn't afford to live in Richmond, so we crossed Victoria Street into, into South Abbotsford and we bought a little house here, which is great. And, um, and so what I noticed, well, as I've suggested, I knew that there were drugs here. I knew that there was dealing and activity and people you know, injecting in privately and that sort of thing. But once you live in a situation like this, Amy, it's very confronting. And uh, I couldn't walk home from the shops with my canvas bags without my head like on a bobble, looking left and right down laneways and in carports and people's front gardens, expecting to see a human being slump there and it became a regular part of life for everybody not just me and it was really uh, sort of dehumanizing that somebody with an addiction could end up potentially dying alone because what they were doing was illegal and I imagined if somebody was coming to those places and hiding to have a cigarette or, or alcohol, which, of course, are both legal substances, we'd all think, well, that's just crazy. And so I just started thinking about this illicit substance and, you know, it, because it's illegal, people are actually dying unnecessarily because that's how we regard it in our society. It used to be like that. Looking back 100 years ago, people could pop into their, you know, pharmacy or whatever they were, their chemists and get little potions and things. And in fact, when we were kids, we had cough mixture with a little bit of a little bit of heroin in it, you know, just to settle us down. So I just couldn't believe that here were people, human beings, just collapsed in this beautiful part of Melbourne, this inner city area that's, you know, it's all happening and it's near the Yarra River and close to the city. And people just accepted it. And I just got to the point, we'd lived here for four years and in 2016, I can still remember the day vividly, it was Sunday the 17th of July and I was coming home and a young guy was at my back gate um, and was collapsed there and I just, and I knew him because I'd seen him in the area. Lovely young guy, always said, hi love, you know, I'll clean up after myself and Mm. then there he was. And I just, it really, it triggered me. And, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. Yeah. And you do describe some of those moments that have really affected you and also some of the moments that have affected your neighbours and the, the experiences they've had and also the strategies that they've had to put in place. For example, to remove the handles from taps so that the people wouldn't be able to access water to, you know, create the substance that would be able to be injected, to park their cars in certain positions. What were some of the things that were happening? Could you describe for us, the, I guess, the atmosphere as well? Because you talk about, you know, every time that there is a, an overdose that could be potentially fatal, you see 
fire trucks, ambulances, maybe a police car, maybe not. And then you'll obviously have a lane blocked off and there's a lot of chaos. It almost feels a bit like a war zone when you're hearing sirens all the time and you're seeing this with your own eyes. And also, as you point out, the children at the local school are seeing this as well. Could you describe some of what life was like before a safe injecting facility was even an idea or was even implemented? Yes, of course. People who'd lived here for years, a lot longer than me, um, when I wrote, you know, which was talking about the book, they shared their experiences with me, which I included in the book. And one of the uh, obvious ones was the handles off the taps, you know. So people would come home and find people overdosed in their garden and the tap was still running. And so sadly, they had to take the tops off their taps. And interestingly, it became a bit of a, a an attraction throughout our campaign for journalists and students who were, you know, focusing on this on this issue. They couldn't believe it. But it made me realise that whilst this became a regular event and people didn't think about it in our area, for other people it gave them a little bit of an insight into the, uh, the, the strategies that people had to undertake to prevent people from dying in their space. Another one was when people were parking their cars, they parked them close together because people would hop in between cars to inject because it was quiet and private. But if they actually did overdose, you'd never know they were there. And you, and if you did find them, to get get in there to, to assist them, to, uh, you know, re- revive them would be nigh impossible. So... All of these little strategies, it stopped the area being as deadly as it was. Mm. The other thing that I I think people never understood was the absolute impact it had on day-to-day activities. So even if you didn't care about people injecting and overdosing, the reality was that our our walkways and and our thoroughfares were often blocked with two or three emergency services vehicles for up to half an hour or an hour at a time while they managed uh, people who'd overdosed. And it was was just a constant in life. And, Amy, people just accepted it. It was just madness, really, really. When you think about it now, it just does not happen now. I mean, people uh, locally who were not here for those heady days, will never understand how incredibly intense that was. And it's like the frog in boiling water. If you're used to it, you just take it on the chin and say, well, this is life. But, well, for me, it was it was not life. It was really dangerous. And the other fascinating thing, of course, is that you look at photos that I've included in the book of three very precious ambulances lined up behind each other. You know, we need those out in the community to look after everybody, not just people Mm. injecting or overdosing. And one of the things that is wonderful about the injecting room is if somebody overdoses in there, they bag them with oxygen. And if they're quite unwell, then they will use Narcan or Naloxone. Uh, It's not blocking our laneways and 
and, and roadways. I mean, that sounds harsh, but it's also a, a reality and an economic reality. To have, I just used to think, three ambulances lined up and a fire truck. Often a fire truck will come as a first responder if there aren't um, available ambulances. And you just look and think, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. If they're sitting there for half an hour, I mean, what is that costing the taxpayer, you know, if you're going to be brutal about it? Mm. I just, I, I really, the, the visuals of living in this war zone and the sounds too, as you suggest, of the constant sirens. And interestingly, often now I'll hear a siren and you notice it. You think, oh, no, look, I, I hope whoever's all right. It got to the stage where you just didn't hear them anymore. Yeah. Living with sirens. And our, and our visitors to our home would say, oh, my God, the sirens. And you, you just learn not to hear them. Mm. Whereas it's different now, you hear them. So it was chaotic. It was um, it was stressful. And you talk about kids. Um, and kids who were living here um, going to and from preschool or or primary school would see this all the time and hear it. I just, it, it was a very distressing scenario. Yeah. yeah. And it also reminds me of the, um, the opening story of a young woman who overdoses and dies that you see her friend, a male friend, you know, waves you across and you offer assistance and, you know, give her your jumper. You realize you don't have naloxone on you and you feel like if you had that training in naloxone and it was there, maybe it could have made a difference to this young woman. But obviously, you know, we'll never know. But you also say that when you're reflecting on that story, that something which shocks you about it is not only, you know, this woman has a family and um, no doubt a backstory, but that also the tragedy had been witnessed by school children as well. So, you imagine the types of conversations these children might be having with their parents when they come home as to what they've seen. So I also felt that that was quite poignant because it was raising just how widely an effect this issue has on everyone. Sometimes we don't know what the consequences will be down the track for people, especially young children, witnessing these kinds of things so early. So it's something that really interested me. But I also I wanted to ask about, you know, the issue of naloxone. And, you know, one of the first thoughts I had was before safe injecting facilities were a thing, were locals able to have naloxone on them to be able to provide that kind of emergency aid in time before an ambulance arrived? Look, I suspect so, although I didn't have it. I didn't have it for the years before I became involved in this issue. Look, it is available. It was available then. It was sort of mm. in an EpiPen form. But now it's a lot more accessible and you can get it in a nasal spray, which is a lot easier to manage and not as hard. But especially for people administering it, residents who aren't medically trained. I think, you know, to, for me to get an EpiPen out and put it into someone's thigh is a, like it's very confronting. It's, mm. You've got someone collapsed who you don't know and you, you just put it into their thigh. I didn't have to do that, but I it is a lot easier now because you can go to the pharmacy and just ask for naloxone and it's free. And I'm looking at my supply here. I have two boxes with, uh, two, with each contains two little plastic 
um, instruments where you can just a nasal spray, but I carry it with me all the time in my bag still because the reality is that not everybody is able to use the injecting room. There's legislated exclusions, for example, if you've got some sort of you've come out of jail and you had some conditions attached to your to your parole, which for example you're not allowed to go down to North Richmond. They can't use it if you're pregnant, if you're under 18, if you've never used drugs before, in, injected before, you can't use it. So there's still people that don't use it that are still publicly injecting. It's not as bad as it was, but it is still happening. Uh, the other thing, of course, is when there's when there are police blitzes down here, which occasionally they'll come through and you know throw a bit of stick about you know, maybe the drug squad or whatever. The local police are fabulous. They understand the nuancing around the injecting room because you actually have to carry your drugs, your illicit substances mm. across the, you know, streets and things to use it in the injecting room. But um, if there's a police blitz or also if there's a lot of media around, often when the media are sort of having a quiet day and they'll send someone down to Richmond to find something, which you always will, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people just use in our lane ways, you know, spread out. So uh, it is it is a really, it's a, it's an interesting issue. But I, the other thing I, I suppose, what how you've described that opening chapter, Amy, is is I really wanted to draw the reader into what it was, what it's like here. Mm. I think people read about it in the paper. Oh, you know, it's just North Richmond again. We are a beautiful community. It's and a really amazing, eclectic, uh, universal group. There's people from every continent lives here. It's happening. It's, it's, it's compassionate. People from every country have been welcomed here for decades. So, uh, so I just think the reader will not see it just as North Richmond. Oh, yeah, the Bronx, the, you know, down there where all the drugs are. It's actually a living and breathing and vibrant community that really dealt with this on a daily basis. And how you described it just prior to this commentary is absolutely accurate. You know, the other thing that's interesting about kids experiencing this, um, I've got people, I know people really well who are part of the campaign whose kids have experienced that over the years. And one, uh, Virginia, who lives near me, her son actually gave evidence at a parliamentary inquiry into drug law reform. Uh, he'd grown up here, had seen this happening and knew one of the people who was injecting an overdose one day, a boy he'd gone to school with. And uh, this young man, uh, friend of, uh, the son of my friend, spoke about how important an injecting room is in this community. So that was his the impact on his life, that he grew up and realised that people dying in the streets, including friends from school, don't don't have to be dying in the streets. There is there is an opportunity to provide a health facility for people uh, that so they won't die. And I thought that was really significant that he did that. It was a very brave thing to do and I really take my hat off to him. Oh, absolutely. I know that when you were starting out in this plight and this quest to change how life was in the area for the residents, you know, the businesses, but also the people using drugs around there, that you, you know, went 
around and did a lot of self-education. You went to Sydney to King's Cross to see their safe injecting facility, which was obviously a landmark facility to get you know inspiration and more information from them. You also went to coroner's hearings and met key people in the field who were working in this and also, you know, taking down a lot of notes and information about the issue. You also then quickly became an independent candidate for a council election, you know, almost a baptism of fire. And no doubt that was as well a a learning (laughs) moment for you as it would be for anyone getting into politics for the first time. And I just wanted to, you know, get a sense from you once you decided, okay, if no one else is going to step up and do something, it's it's up to me and I need to garner support, I need to find my allies. What kind of things did you do around self-education, around educating others and also garnering public support? What kind of things did you do to, to make that a reality and then to, to ultimately have quite a good outcome at the council elections despite not getting elected, you know, surprising a lot of your fellow candidates? Um, look, I think one of the best things that happened was that I didn't get onto council, Amy. I, I The reason that, that I ran as an independent councillor on a single issue of supporting a safe injecting room was to do the market research. It was, it was a very mm. simple instrument, really. I never intended to, to win a seat on council, and honestly, I'm so glad I didn't, and that's <laughs> with great due respect to councillors because I think it is a really tough gig and I'm not downplaying that at all, but that was not the purpose for running because I really need to understand, did anybody else care about this issue? Is it just me? And how do you find out? I mean, I didn't yeah. have lots of money to employ a market research company that could take you know, six months to, you know, get a strategy and then implement it and then analyse it. It was, time was of the essence here. There was actually no time to waste. And it was when a friend of mine from North East Victoria, Diane Shepherd, contacted me and said, oh, you know, I'm running for a small council in, in North East Victoria, Indigo, Indigo Valley. Um, so I just thought, what a great idea, I'll do that. <laughs> Which was just madness, you know, really. But... Because I felt that there was, it was really urgent and this was, so I found the young man, man at my back gate in July and the, the council elections were three months later. And so it was in that time that I was able to learn a lot purely by Google. You know, I got onto Google and found out about the injecting room in Sydney uh, and then thought that was great and I thought, well, that sounds like something we would use here that would be beneficial here So once then I ran for council and I actually was just overwhelmed and I still get goosebumps when I think about the the support that I got, the affirmation of my single policy, which just, as I always say, it's I've got a mandate to do something and I did. So then I immediately, as you said, I hopped on a plane, went to Sydney, had a look around that centre, just thought it was amazing, it was so professional. It was pretty boring, really, you know. It wasn't, you know, it's what people think about injecting rooms, that they're chaotic and shooting galleries, you know, the old pejorative about about these health facilities. It was just fabulous and the staff were remarkable. The, the clients were, you know, coming in and out like it was just what you do. 
and I really felt that they that they had a wonderful setup up there, and they were terrific to us because we had nothing. You know, when we first started this embryonic group, we had no money, we we had absolutely nothing, and they sent down you know uh, booklets and gave us access to a wonderful video that I still, that still makes me cry that we showed at all our forums. So, you know, it, that was a really big learning experience. The other thing, as you suggest too, was the inquest into the tragic death of a young woman referred to as Miss A. She died in the Hungry Jack's uh, restaurant or takeaway place in Hoddle Street. She had two little kids and there was an inquiry uh, inquest and it's the first time I've ever been in a courtroom, let alone at an inquest. And I, um, it was a proper court, so they had, you know, uh, experts in this area. And that day, I learnt so much. I just, it was, it was overwhelming uh, the information. But there were the experts. There's the evidence. You know, there's the, mm. the data and the information about not just Sydney but around the world. You know why these things work, why a fixed position injecting room is preferable to a mobile injecting room, you know, and what that means. And I just, uh, that was just a critical information for me to build the momentum moving forward. And it really helped. So really from July to December that year was like just an explosion for me um, and really get me on the road to what would happen in 2017, which was then bringing the community with me, reaching out to people, uh, and it was, you know, it went on from there. But I think, you know, people talk about these issues very personally, and I did mention in the book that I have had two nephews, two of my sisters have lost sons to to heroin overdose, uh, and... Whilst obviously that gave me the experience of living in a family with these losing these young people, and of course I knew both those young men when they were babies, when they were little kids, you know, when they were going to school, and I thought they were hilarious and they were <laughs> gorgeous and fun, and and now they've been dead for a long time, both of them. So it gave me a huge insight into that. But at the time that they were going through their that journey, I was in the country with little children. So I actually wasn't as connected to that hurly burly with my sisters at the time. So uh, people think that I ran the campaign because of my nephews, and that's not true. I did give me an insight, but I had no idea. Like, this is a totally different story that, uh, you know, uh, whether they would have used the injector room or not, I don't know. But it was just an understanding that this is what families go through. What can we do to help them? And the other big thing I've got to mention is stigma because the stigma involved in addiction for families and people with addiction is, is what's killing people. People can't talk about it. They're ashamed. They're judged. And as a community, we're really tough on those people. And then it happens to them. And it's what I've also learned in this journey, Amy, is that addiction impacts so many of us, so many of us. I've been told quietly behind the hand, don't tell anybody, but, you know, this is what happened to me and my family. Mm. And I'm just a bit over that now. I think people shouldn't be creeping around and not speaking out and saying, I actually really need help here. I think sometimes I think is that one of the reasons that we underfund a lot of 
services because people think it's not that bad out there. And in fact, it is. It's really bad with mental health issues, with addiction issues. So I suppose another aspect of my book is I'm trying to bust open that story and saying this happens to many people. Addiction doesn't care about your status, your postcode, your income, who you vote for. None of that matters. It is actually something that we all need to know about and to care for each other when we're going through this journey. And I think what reminded me of the need for further empathy was the conversation I had with Johan Hari in 2018 when he was telling me, and no doubt you'd be aware of this from his book, the causes of addiction can be things like childhood trauma and you know mental health issues. When your life hasn't gone the right way and you're really struggling to cope and this can become a coping mechanism. So it's an expression of something which is more of a deeper problem, something that an individual is struggling with often. So if it's an addiction and not just someone using it for recreational use who doesn't believe they have an addiction, that can be something that is a, an internal struggle that a lot of people are grappling with and struggling with you know, their everyday life. So I totally understand you know, that need for understanding. I wanted to, I guess, jump across a lot of content because we don't have the time to cover it all and I want everyone to read your book to get the full detail of it because you did keep diaries, so what you do share is a very detailed account. But you say, you know, towards the start that Premier Andrews was emphatic in his rejection of recommendations from coroners saying that uh, we need to have these safe injecting facilities and trial them. He was saying prior to the 2014 election and onwards, I'm very clear we have no plans to introduce a facility like that. You were lobbying your local member and it was very much falling on deaf ears and there seemed to be somewhat a difference of approach. And then suddenly there's a breakthrough and the Andrews government announces this trial for a safe injecting facility in Richmond. Obviously, this is quite a, a momentous occasion for you and those campaigning alongside you. What has happened since that moment for those who haven't been following this closely? What has happened for those who were able to access the safe injecting facility who were eligible and what kind of a difference has it been making locally for the residents, for the traders on Victoria Street and also for those using drugs? Well, for me, as I mentioned before, just the, some basic things like the um, lack of sirens in the in the area is, is key. The, we just don't see the people slumped in the, the laneways any... Uh, anymore you know occasionally there are still some people as I said are still using publicly and that's you know their choice and or they have no choice baby um so I think it's made a massive had a massive positive impact the other thing too um and I do write in the book about last year we ran a neighbor of mine and I ran a an art exhibition for the artists from the injecting room and your listeners wouldn't be surprised to know that a lot of people that use the injecting room are extremely artistic, creative through the written word or photography or painting, you know, art and addiction sadly sometimes sort of, you know, buddies. And we uh, set up an art exhibition and with art purely from created within the injecting room. So the 
staff there who I absolutely must mention are remarkable human beings. And in fact, I think anybody who works in that sector, Amy, in mental health, in addiction, you have to be a very special person to do that, really. And it's what I've certainly experienced. And people who work sort of in the legal aid area too, you know, representing clients that are, you know, struggling with life, I just really, really take my hat off to them. We've got a lot to do with Fitzroy Legal Service, people there, just amazing human beings. And I think that has what has kept me going all of these years and the beautiful people that I've met, including the clients of the injecting room too, amazing human beings. Is One of the things is that when they got together to create the art for the art exhibition, how they one guy said, you know, we, are, we can be quite lonely. It's a very, very solitary experience most of the time. And so when the uh, staff at the uh, supervised injecting facility set up the tables for them to do art, they would sit together and talk and, you know, con- and they'd connect. That was a really key thing. So coming there is not just about injecting but connecting with each other. And sometimes, as you say, all of these, when you talk to Johan, we we judge people with addiction and other issues, but we don't know what's happened in their lives. And, you know, I, I always look at it. So people gave birth to these people. There were families involved. What's happened here is, is you know, it, it, it's myriad things. For them now to have somewhere to go where they feel respected, not judged, cared for and when they're ready to make another step to look at rehabilitation they know that they can do that safely and with people who really will care about them and the message that came out of the uh the exhibition for us was the the acknowledgement of their skill set their their capabilities and the fact that they needed to be recognised in the community. And you know what, Amy, the community loved that art exhibition. It went for three and a half weeks. It was just at a uh, shopping centre here in um, on the corner of Victoria and Lenox Street. <clears throat> and we're having another one this year. The community just said, you've got to do this again. So we're just getting underway to have another one this year. So, you know... It's never an injecting room or any situ- any uh, facility like this will ever be the panacea for everything. And I think that's what the opponents or people who uh, are, don't like the injecting room and, and we acknowledge those people and we totally understand that they have their opinions and that's the way it is. And But I think for the work that it does do in connecting people and providing a safe place to people and reducing ambulances in our laneways and all of that sort of thing, I think it's made a massive difference. Now, uh, we are about to receive, or the government's about to receive, the second expert review panel report on the injecting room. One of the key foci of both the Margaret Hamilton expert review panel report, which came out in 2020, and this one coming out in 23, there's been a focus on amenity and so amenity, public amenity, is a key issue. So that will be interesting how people perceive that to be, whether it's improved or not. My view is it absolutely has for the reasons I've explained. But, uh, you know, we'll just see what happens. The other issue, of course, is that the injecting facility is a trial facility. 
and until it becomes a permanent facility, it's always under threat of closure. Mm. So the campaign continues, Amy. I mean, we we are not resting on our laurels. There's still work to do. We would love some other facilities to be opened across Melbourne. It seems crazy in a country like Australia that we only have two. And Sydney opened in 20, 2001, so 2020, for 22 years it's been there. And it was only made permanent about 12 years ago. Uh, so this one is still, it's in its fifth year. We would love it to be made permanent and for there to be other uh, facilities open across Melbourne and wherever we don't know, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, look, it's it's an ongoing story, really. It's not that the end, you know, you can mm. never put the end at the end, you know, <laughs> because it's, it's it's just one of, you know, they're trying to get one up in Dublin and in the UK and, you know, it's just people are recognising that we really do need to support people through these sorts of facilities across yeah. the world. And to give people a sense of the Hamilton Report's key findings, within an 18-month period, over 119,000 visits were made to the facility, making it one of the busiest in the world. Thousands of overdoses were safely managed. 271 were classed as extremely serious. At least 21 lives were saved. There have been no deaths in the facility. And there had been a reduction in reports of public injecting. Additionally, the claims about the honeypot effect, which I know is quite a significant criticism, whereby people suggest that putting a safe injecting facility in that area is just driving more people into the area to use drugs. According to that report, the review panel said that most of the people using the facility were already coming to North Richmond before the trial was established to purchase and use heroin, citing a figure of 86% of the people going there were already going to the area previously. So I guess that gives people some idea of the shift in a numerical sense from the studies that have come out and the the reports. But just to close out the conversation, Judy, then, do you see that the community might eventually get on the same page? Because there still obviously is criticism from some parts of the community of the safe injecting facility. And as you say, it is still at risk of not proceeding into the future if it's still at a trial stage. How do you see that gap, that area of disagreement closing? Uh, Look, a couple of things. One, the honeypot issue was covered extensively in the inquest that I attended. And every person who spoke at that talked about honeypots you put an injecting room where there's already an existing honeypot. I mean, you wouldn't put yep. an injecting room in an area where there's no, you know, there's not a, a need for it. Uh, so there's this, and Margaret Hamilton spoke extensively about that too, uh, as well. So uh, I don't, I don't subscribe to the view that it's created a honeypot that was already here. Um, in terms of the future, look, I think people, it's a bit of a parallel universe conversation with some people, and that's. I get that some people don't like the facilities and that's just the way it is. A couple of things, though. One, I think that there are – you can take a tour of the injecting room. I took a group through last Friday morning. Uh, It was fabulous. I think uh, you can just go onto the North Richmond Community Health Centre and look up the injecting room and you can – it's an Eventbrite booking system. 
So if any of your listeners would like to go through, I would strongly recommend, especially people who might be sitting on the fence on this issue, it absolutely clarifies what it's about, what the staff do and, you know, what are the opportunities. So it's not just injecting, as I said before, but connecting. There is a lot of opportunities for staff. It's for relationship creation, for supporting people to move to the next stage if that's where they're at. Uh, but it's about keeping them alive. And even as Premier Andrews eventually said, you cannot be resuscitated if you are dead. That's yep. just the reality of this issue. So if you are alive, there are many opportunities. The other thing about the community coming on board, look, we've had, since the injecting room opened, we've had two state elections and a local government election. Uh, there was a state election in November 2018 and another one, obviously, three months ago and a local government election in 2020. People who opposed the injecting room, absolutely, as is their right, stood in those elections. Uh, their polling didn't, you know, it wasn't remarkable for the amount of social media and promotion and potentially some financial backing that they had. And the most recent one in November, we had a Liberal candidate who was you know, definitely going to close the injecting room down, and he actually attracted fewer votes than the Liberal candidate did in 2014 before the injecting room opened. So I think in terms of the community, you know, I, I do believe that there is support for the injecting room. Interestingly, too, another comment, commentary I do get, uh, we have a lot of renters in this area, and a few young people who come to live here have said to me, you know, one of the reasons we love living here, you've got an injecting room. And I said, really? Like, what's that, that about? And they said, well, it's about your social justice community. You know, imagine campaigning for a facility like that. Yeah. And I said, do you ever feel, and these were to young women, I said, do you ever feel unsafe? And they said, no. They said, we think this is great. Like, Wow. You know, mm. so traders are traders are an interesting group. Um, like a lot of shopping strips in Melbourne, Victoria Street has a lot of vacancies. It's often attributed to the injecting room. People, uh, local estate agents, know that it's actually the ridiculously high rents that are being asked with no repairs. You know, they, it's just it's there's lot, it's a very uh, complex area yeah. an issue, but it's across Melbourne. You know, so um, look. I, I, I don't know. That's the best way I can answer that question. Mm, it's a great question. It is question, a complicated one, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is, and it yeah. always will be. I mean, human yeah. beings, we are very complicated. And But I, I just really want to enforce how fabulous a, a community this is. Mm. So I just ask your listeners, please, whenever you read a lot of negativity about us, it's, yeah, it's the opposite is true. And I'm just so proud of the people that I live with and I run into in the shops and in local pubs and things, it's just, it's wonderful, really. Yeah. And that so. community spirit does shine through in this book. It's very clear that it exists and it's very vibrant. So I absolutely know that if people pick up this book, they will get a very full sense of just what it's like to live there. The positives and some of the challenges that are still there, but obviously have been changed and shifted through the introduction of Victoria's first safe injecting facility. And you obviously played such a big role there, Judy, you and your fellow residents. So we take our hats off to you. 
and say a big thank you to you for pushing through a lot of difficulty to get this on the agenda. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what comes out of this next report. And um, I just want to say thank you so much to you and the residents for your time campaigning on this and also for your time today, Judy, speaking with us. So thanks so much. Well, thank you, Amy, and I really, I really do appreciate it because it is obviously something I'm passionate about. But I always do a call to action, so I'd ask your readers to read the book. But on page 277, I've got four videos, short videos that I'd really encourage people to look at. The three of them are only one minute each, and there's a 14 minute video. It will give them a bit of an immersion into our campaign. And the other thing is, the call to action is, have a look at, come and take a tour of the injecting room. Go onto the North Richmond Community Health website, check it out, make a booking. And next time you're at a barbecue and somebody's bagging it out, speak out about it. Say, actually, that's not true. Why don't you go and have a a tour of the injecting room? You know, Mm. I, I just think we need to counter the negative narrative, which is such an easy thing to do, the negative narrative. I want the positive narrative to be heard. So that's all I'm asking. <laughs> pretty, that's huge, I know. But anyway, as I, as I airily leave the uh, conversation. But thank you so much, Amy. And I love the fact that you've read the book. That actually really helps in a conversation. I've had a few conversations with people who haven't read it. So oh. I really, really appreciate that forensic look you've had at it. And, you know, that's just very, I feel very humbled by that. Oh, thank you, Judy. It was a true pleasure to read. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Good on you. Thank you so much, Amy. All the best. You too. I've just been speaking with activist and campaigner Judy Ryan, who's been discussing her new book with me, You Talk, We Die, The Battle for Victoria's First Safe Injecting Facility, which is out now through Scribe Publications and was launched with Fiona Patton and Kathy McGowan. So Judy was in excellent company there and I do absolutely recommend checking it out. And I'll put some links up to the videos that Judy mentioned on our social media as well. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.